From the International Energy Forum, the home of global energy dialogue, this is the IF Podcast. I'm Joe McMonagle, Secretary General of the International Energy Forum. Energy prices are surging this winter across Europe, just as the global community gathered in Glasgow for the COP26. This year, we saw new important elections in Europe and more slated in 2022. How will outcomes impact energy policies? While the pandemic reminded us that the world is interconnected, there also seems to be increased talk of trade restrictions. In short, there's never been a more important time for diplomacy and dialogue, so we thought it would be a good time to talk to an experienced diplomat, international lawyer, and advocate for global engagement. Today's guest is Ana Palacio, the formidable former Spanish foreign minister, a former member of both the Spanish and European parliaments, and a former senior vice president and general counsel of the World Bank. Anna is currently the founder of Palacio Associates, an international law firm with offices in Madrid, Brussels, and Washington. Anna, it's great to have you join us. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Joe. If you allow me, among my previous incarnations, I will say that I have a nuclear past because this will come. This will come. And I, I have a gas present as I'm a member of the board of the of the system operator, of the Spanish system, uh, gas system operator. But thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a fantastic moment to discuss these issues. Yeah, well, I, I knew you would have a good grasp of energy issues, but the, the fact that you had this background in nuclear was another added benefit. So, so thanks for that. You know, I think you're most well known, you know, probably in 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 most of the circles of folks who who will listen to this broadcast and follow energy markets as the former uh, foreign minister of Spain. And in that role, and actually in in a lot of previous roles, you've advocated for global diplomacy and and greater engagement. As I said in 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 the introduction, I'm just looking for maybe some opening comments from you on how you view the importance of global dialogue on energy and climate issues? Well, Joe, in a, in a nutshell, yes, you're right, it's diplomacy, it's engagement, but it's much more than that. Energy and its corollary of uh, climate is, uh, in my opinion, or sustainability of our planet, if we want to put it this way, is, in my opinion, the epic of our times. The epic of humanity, and I'm not being grand just for the sake of being grand. It's that this is, this is, uh, this is about our future, and uh, we will we will be needing uh, far-reaching voices, and there is where diplomacy comes in, and uh, where engagement comes in. But we we also have to understand that each one of us needs to be a participant, needs to be an actor, and of course, allow me to say that when I say each one of us, I mean multilateral institutions in the first place. And among multilateral institutions, honestly, the role of IF is paramount as a trailblazer because you bring together OPEC plus the IEA plus others. And this means that you have consumers and producers that you have developed and developing that you have interested actors in, uh, I would say, from from the oil wells to the high tech. And this this means that you really feel a a much needed role in this idea of diplomacy and engagement. Well, thank you for that. Yes, we uh, we, we definitely have a unique role. Sometimes I admire uh, Secretary General Barkindo and my friend, Dr. Barol, because they can focus on one angle of the uh, of the equation, but at the IEF, we have both producers and consumers. And I wanted to maybe get some ideas from you on, you know, there could be a lot of differences as we actually have seen recently with, um, you know, the US and, and uh, other countries, India and, and Japan asking for OPEC to produce more. And, uh, and then of course you had the release of uh, strategic petroleum reserves that was again led by the U.S. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, if you could, as a former diplomat and foreign minister, you could give us some thoughts on on how to maybe help bridge this gap on 
uh, with producers and consumers. I like to say that I, I think they have the same goals in mind in that, you know, neither really wants prices to get too high. I know for some people, they, they think OPEC and producers want high prices, but I, I, I think that, uh, you know, they're also worried about the global economy and the health of uh, demand and the health of their customers' economies. But just looking for some uh, advice from a, a former foreign minister on commonality okay. and, and engagement between producers and consumers. You know, uh, Joe, maybe you're going to be disappointed because what I'm going to highlight is that what we need today most is uh, just understanding, uh, common sense, just taking stock that Germany and India cannot have the same path forward that uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, say Sweden have differences and that we are in it together in, in this epic, in this big challenge. And that frankly, what we fundamentally need is realism, is honesty, is uh, trustworthy data. And this is very basic, but without that, there is no diplomacy and we need to have a political will, political will to find solutions and solutions cannot be a hundred for one and zero for another. And I hope that we come back to that because of the divide. I mean, I think that you have a lot to say in the IF on this between developed and developing. Uh, this idea of the frog leap of developing from wood to renewables is, is, is again, is another of the big divides that many times we don't, we don't put uh, enough uh, emphasis on. As I say, well, we are in it together. Let's convince ourselves that this is true. And, uh, and frankly, as I say, honesty and political will. Well, I couldn't agree more uh, with you on that. Um... You know, as we as we speak today, I guess maybe a couple of weeks ago, we thought we might be rounding the corner on on the pandemic. But uh, I think with the new variant uh, and and different potential lockdowns or some real lockdowns in in Europe and some other places and other places, uh, even in the U.S., there's some restrictions, uh, mass mandates, and things like that. So we thought we were maybe rounding the corner, but uh, the pandemic is is kind of still with us. Uh, and probably will be, although we, we, I think we're all gonna try to achieve some kind of normality. But, but looking back and, and maybe looking at how you operate uh, your business and, and, and your clients and just as an observer, wondering what you see as the lasting impacts of the pandemic on global engagement, on energy and climate markets and policies, as well as other parts of, of the economy. Are, are, are we gonna, you know, is everyone going to still work from home? Will there be a big slash of uh, uh, of the workforce that will continue to work from home? Of course, that will impact probably transportation fuels and and things like that. But obviously, big impacts for the real estate sector and and other sectors. I'm just wondering what you view. What 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 lessons should we learn or take away from from the pandemic? Well. First, we are still in it, so it's not even a one billion dollars question that you are asking is that a an all-encompassing question because this this will have impacts in many in all works of life but allow me just to say some basic issues i think that the the pandemic has turned into the first global social engineering experiment for humanity from confining populations all over the world to giving exceptional powers to authorities even in the very liberal democracies that we live in. And uh, this will have repercussions. For starters, much of these exceptional regulations will not go away easily. And uh, I think that another strand that we will be seeing um, at the center of our concerns is the profound psychological effects. We are still just in the beginning of, of addressing this. but. Uh, I, I think that you mentioned in your introduction the big contradictory situation that we are facing. On the, on the one hand, uh, the, there is the understanding that the challenge was global, that we are in it together, in the pandemic together. 
But on the other hand, you have mentioned the rise of protectionism, and this is this is seen in all markets. I mean, honestly, speaking as a European Union citizen, we saw the first knee-jerk reactions that were contrary to the internal market, contrary to the free circulation of goods within the European Union, contrary to the free circulation of people when something affects this deeply, uh, the, the ground rules, then you have to think that this will have consequences. Um, consequences also positive, also of awareness, also of, of overcoming. Now, as for the energy vector, I think that energy has been brought to the forefront and uh, lately this, there is, has been this uh, spike on coal and, L and LNG prices that has been attributed mainly to the pandemic. And I think that this is, frankly, this is not fair. Uh, this has been a perfect storm. And uh, honestly, I think that the big impact will be on logistics, supply chains, have been impacted and uh, have been disrupted and will remain disrupted. And supply chains from the logistics perspective, but also from the impact that, for instance, um, restrictions on coal in China has meant that uh, manufacturing outlets have had to close production or that high prices in Europe High prices of energy have meant that uh, fertilizers companies have had to stop producing because they couldn't afford the, the prices. So the, the impact on the consequences will be pervasive and will be manifold and will be accumulating, just will be adding up. I think that uh, you have asked for lesson learned. I think that we will be learning lessons for the next years and even decades. We will be reflecting on what happened. But for me, one of the important issues is that uh, we need more transparency. We need comparable metrics. This again is very basic, benchmarks. It's true in the health sector, but it, it has, can be generalized to other areas. I think that this is where your organization has a long way to go. We need, we need in this, in this area of sustainability. We need common, common approaches, common benchmarks, common metrics, common, I would say, common approaches. And this is one of the issues that uh, that will be there and will remain. And I hope that we have become aware that this is a big challenge and that we have to face it from, as I say, from health, but also in other areas as energy. Well, you gave me a little uh, intro into my uh, next question. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because you're, you're in Europe and a former leader in Europe. And of course, uh, you live and, and, and work in Europe, among other places. So we're trying to get a view from Europe for our listeners. Obviously, there's lots of headlines about the energy crisis in, in Europe and uh, actually also parts of Asia, mainly because of high natural gas prices and electricity costs uh, in Europe, which, which really have skyrocketed. Natural gas is now the most expensive fossil fuel on an energy equivalent basis. Uh, I think it's a, it, the equivalent of about $200 per barrel uh, of oil. Um, so I'm wondering, how is Europe dealing with the energy crisis? And do you still see gas security is a priority for Europe? Well, allow me first to say that I, I can speak for the European Union, but Europe today is larger. Um, so let's concentrate on the European Union for reasons that I hope that we will have time to, to, I mean, to address in a bit more detail. Uh, I mean, the second caveat is that we speak about Europe as an actor in energy. But the truth of the matter is that the energy union is, is still work in progress. And frankly, we, we are missing or we need much progress. So we cannot really speak about Europe as a European Union as one actor. We have to go through 
the different member states and the different dependencies on gas, as you mentioned. I think that overall gas security is a priority for the European Union, but of course, the position of Germany is not the position of France. France has not been really uh, much affected by by this crisis as 75% of their electricity comes from nuclear. On the contrary, uh, Germany is uh, extremely dependent on gas and I would say even worse in climate in climate uh, just terms on coal they are demothballing their their generators the coal uh, the coal generation and they are and this is the, the I would say the contradiction you have a country like Spain that has dismantled almost all our coal capacities we are practically Null, and even if we have real challenges in terms of uh, of gas and the price of gas, we cannot do as Germany has done uh, to increase our production from coal. So it's a very it's a very complex picture. And as I say for our listeners, you always have to keep in mind that energy union is the target. Energy union is a goal, but that we are as in so many areas, we are, we are working toward, toward, uh, towards it and that we need to face, especially the positioning of the major economies, notably uh, in this aspect, uh, Germany and France. I agree with you, and it's some really terrific insights. I think people view Europe as a monolith, but there are, there are very substantial uh, differences as you pointed out. But I do think the EU in particular is has been a leader, obviously, in the energy transition, um, sort of uh, leading and also dragging everybody uh, with them. Uh, but I also think the market is also sending signals on energy prices and maybe the pace of energy transition or, or maybe the disorderly uh, uh, march uh, of the transition. So I'm, I'm wondering, how do we balance the need for energy today and addressing uh, climate issues? Well, you're right, uh, Joe, in highlighting uh, the role that the European uh, Union and this, the European Union, because in the European Union, um, climate energy transition is paramount. The, the issue is that we have very different views on notably on, on the role of nuclear and the role of gas, but there is a common endeavor to, uh, to this transition. And uh, I think that we also have to highlight what you have in, implied, is that the European Union has been and is the standard bearer of this climate awareness of the energy transition. And we, we still are. And third, the European Union is a regulatory power. And this is extremely important because we need legal certainty. We need certainty in the market. So the European Union has launched a big exercise called the taxonomy, which is an awful, awful expression, the taxonomy. So this means what would be the investments that could benefit from, I would say, not subsidies, but in investment advantages. And this goes well beyond the realm of the European Union. This goes, this is a possibility of just avoiding having what we have now, that uh, according to one of these outlets that just qualifies companies, you are a very good uh, sustainable company in terms of climate. And according to the, to the neighbor um, noting uh, outlet, you are very bad because there are no benchmarks, there are no common rules. I think that there the European Union can play a very important and will play. We have in other areas from plastics to private data, we have played this, this role that you have highlighted. And I think that this is a common endeavor. And this is why I think it's we have to overcome this internal quarrel between the pro-nuclear and the pro-gas. Because today for the transition, 
nuclear is not the solution, but we, I mean, at this technological level, there is no solution without nuclear. In the same way, gas is a transitional energy, but we need this transitional form in order to reduce CO2 emissions. And there, the best example is the United States, how the United States, by going from coal to gas, has reduced, uh, plummeted the, the CO2 emissions. On the contrary, how Germany, by declaring a moratorium on nuclear and going to coal, really to gas and coal, but mainly to coal, has, has increased exponentially the, the CO2 emissions. So we need to come to terms to that because our challenge as European Union is to regulate, to send signals, to coordinate in all areas. We cannot just leave aside nuclear and gas because they are too fundamental. Exactly. And, and uh, you mentioned commonality many times. And as the producer-consumer uh, organization, we, we have to find commonality. And, and, and at least, uh, you know, from the IF uh, standpoint, we, uh, we, you know, we, we're trying to focus on the emissions, uh, not the, the fuel uh, source or, or technology. Uh, but really focus on the the, the emission and and uh, technology or fuel uh, uh, neutral. Um, but you gave me the the intro to to nuclear and teased us at the beginning, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about nuclear with you. Um, President Macron in France uh, recently announced major new initiatives uh, in terms of the this industrial policy and and really big spending. I think in new technologies and R and D, but specifically on on nuclear power, and uh, one of the areas is uh, small uh, modular reactors, but also on uh, expanding traditional big scale uh, nuclear projects in in France. So I'm wondering, um, you mentioned you know your background in in nuclear. I'm wondering if you could expand a little bit more on just how important nuclear energy and and development. Uh, is and as well as other new technologies uh, aside from wind and solar to achieve climate progress and, and address global warming. Well, you are absolutely right, and and frankly, I commend uh, and I normally always uh, highlight that our goal is not green. Our goal is decarbonize. Our goal is the greenhouse emissions. It's not green by itself. So we cannot confine ourselves to renewables. Renewables is part, necessary part of the equation, but it's not the full equation. And we have to be open-minded. How do we get to, to lower the CO2 emissions? How do we get there? And I mentioned the United States, which is a good example. And I mentioned Germany, which is not such a good example. And nuclear is part of it. Okay, what is the, 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 the issue is if, as I said before, if our goal is net zero, unless there is a breakthrough in technology that allows us to store intermittent, which means renewable wind and solar up the, the, I mean, the examples of, of this intermittent energy, there is no solution without uh, globally, a country can decide just to have a nuclear moratorium, but all over, there is no solution without nuclear. And uh, what's the big challenge in our societies, in Spain or in Germany? Having worked in nuclear, I was executive vice president for Arriva, for the international portfolio of Arriva, the big nuclear, the French and global, I would say, nuclear uh, company. And I think that the first thing that we have to do is explain, really explain the challenges that nuclear poses to the citizens. Until now, we have had the public opinion only listening to the anti-nuclear, because this is my big criticism to utilities in general, is that they were very comfortable in just with their reactors and they didn't get to the public arena to explain, because there are challenges to nuclear. But honestly, in the, the opposite extreme, uh, there are challenges with wind and solar. And we may mention, and your 
encompassing uh, question, the uh, scarcity of certain minerals that will impact and uh, the impact on other aspects of, of uh, environment. So all energies have uh, challenges. I'm not going to say that they are equivalent. The nuclear is a, is a complex uh, approach, but we need to explain. So I think that now the tide has changed. Um, I think that now there is a willingness to explain uh, to, to the public. And there is where I think that the, the new um, small modular reactors is a great news. These are not yet developed, but they have two advantages. First, they are small. And honestly, in our subconscious, uh, we have Fukushima and uh, we have Chernobyl. And here come these other small reactors. And again, I mean, the challenge is not that big, even vision. And then there is a different technology. The, until now, we have been using fission technology, and this is fusion technology. And uh, the challenges are well, very different, and I would say in many areas, lower. So I think that all this will help public opinion, because again, I think the big challenge with nuclear is public opinion. Uh, the public opinion to have a better assessment of the, the real challenges of nuclear, and this will allow also classic big reactors to, to be built, and uh, France will, but other, I mean, uh, the biggest, uh, the, the biggest builder of reactors today is China, uh, with over 100 reactors either being built or projected. And so here we are. This is why we cannot just declare a moratorium on nuclear, and that's it. In a country like Spain, even from a security perspective, whatever happens in the reactors in the south of France will affect us directly. So um, it's, this is where we stand. And I personally think that it's time to come to terms with this challenge and to understand that this is, this is for all of us to address. Yeah, and I, I would also, uh, I know you're a, a big fan of the of the IEA as well. I, in my previous life used to be the vice chairman of the IEA, but um, I think it's important to commend uh, our yeah. colleagues there and Dr. Barol for uh, advocating, you know, a strong role of nuclear in uh, the transition. And um, as you said, we, we, we have to do wind and solar and we have to do much, much more in terms of deployment uh, there, but I think the uh, the important uh, report that the IA did uh, in 2019, the technology report that said that half of the emissions we need to uh, mitigate to address uh, global warming have to come from new technologies that are not commercialized or even uh, envisioned yet. Um, certainly, small modular reactors maybe fit into one of those categories, but of course, nuclear in general is, uh, is, is an off-the-shelf technology that, that can be used. And so I think that it's really important that the IA is speaking out on that. It's something that we are doing and will continue to do as well. But Joe, I, that's, you, I fully agree with you. The problem is that this has to permeate to public opinion. Uh, it's, I think that it's starting to change, but whatever we need to do to explain we are all for renewables, yet we cannot find, we cannot square, we cannot just solve the equation without nuclear today. Uh, I mean, uh, of course, there is the challenge of, of new technologies. You have mentioned that. And uh, the, the biggest challenge would be a breakthrough in storage of uh, intermittents. Because right now the expectation is that this will be done through hydrogen, and this is a possibility. I mean, this is on the table, but when you read about uh, hydrogen today, it seems it it looks like it's already uh, available, mm -hmm. and second that it's efficient. We have to tell the public opinion that, of course, hydrogen will be part of the solution. Absolutely yes, but that this is this is a uh, a process that 
is not at all efficient and that right now it's extremely expensive. We need to work on this. Uh, carbon capture and storage is another forgotten in the European Union. I don't know why, but among the future, uh, carbon capture, capture and storage, which makes absolute sense because this would give an extension of life to natural gas is not any longer taken into account in the front row of the technologies. Everything goes to hydrogen, which hydrogen is, is great, but again, we need everything. And we also need this carbon capture and storage. And you are based in the Gulf. I think that there the Gulf has a lot to say and to do. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, let, let's move on. Uh, we'll still talk about Europe, but move on and maybe get a little bit outside of energy, uh, but maybe talk about the implications for energy. And, and that's with, uh, you know, this year we've seen uh, elections in parts of Europe and next year there's uh, more elections in, in some big countries. I'm wondering what you see the impact of the elections this year and, and next year will be on uh, energy and, and climate policies? Well, again, in the European Union, the couple franco-allemand, so the pair, France and Germany, counts. Of course, we have other players, but these two are paramount, and Germany has just a new uh, government issued from the last elections and from a long negotiation between three parties, the Socialists, the Liberals, and the Greens. And this has been a long and protracted uh, negotiation because it's it's a complicated match, liberals and uh, and greens. And uh, this is especially true in the area of energy. Uh, greens have in their DNA being anti-gas, anti-nuclear and pro-renewables. Pro but they have tamed down their, their maximalist positions. And today this government just openly is for gas and in Germany there is no and the declarations are there. There is just this idea but that is this is led by geopolitical consideration, not by energy consideration, the, the declaration by the new green uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs that said yesterday uh, yeah well, on Monday the 13th uh, she said that uh, uh, the Nord Stream 2, which is the big gasoduct that links directly Russia with, uh, with uh, Germany, and that with over 50 BCM uh, capacity, the Nord Stream can't be approved because it doesn't fulfill the requirements of the European energy uh, law. As a consequence, the prices have spiked 10 or 11 percent. Um, but the position of the German government is for, and their Greens have given up for gas, but staunchly anti-nuclear, staunchly anti-nuclear. Um, at the other extreme, we have France that is staunchly pro-nuclear and, of course, has nothing against gas. So it's a more en encompassing perspective, but staunchly pro-nuclear. So now we had, I mentioned, there's a taxonomy delegated act, so a list of financial options for, for investment in the area of renewables that has forgotten, has left in a limbo nuclear and gas. And of course, France wants to bring nuclear back and the Germans, not openly, because of course this would be too much, but undercover through the through the back door would like to have in some consideration for gas. And this is a big challenge because there are there, are, there is a, th a third group and the Spanish government is in this third group that do not want nuclear and do not want gas. So there we are. Of course, European Union is master in modeling through. My guess, Joe, is that we will have uh, the green taxonomy, we will have the decarbonizing taxonomy that will include gas, and we will have maybe a pink, or I don't know what taxonomy that will include nuclear. This is with two delegated acts, independent delegated acts. I 
think we will reach that. And I honestly, I think this would be sensible. But of course, as I say, it's it, this is not the unanimity of the union. Well, uh, we, we've talked a little bit about the pandemic and, and some of the lasting impacts. And I, I think one of the uh, impacts, unfortunately, of the pandemic has been the widening of the divide on energy access and energy poverty. I mean, there's there's 700 million people without access to energy or clean energy, and that that's growing, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. And of course, the world's population, especially in these areas without energy, is expected to grow. So I guess the big question is, uh, no easy answer here, is how do we get serious and address energy poverty from, from your view? Energy po poverty and development as such, because if there is a correlation that stands, is baseload electricity and development and, uh, and prosperity. This is a correlation almost perfect. This is my, my World Bank approach. And very contrary, by the way, the World Bank is one of them, is the, this idea that we now we had from uh, COP26 is that uh, there will be no, no uh, financing available from development national agencies, which you know, this is national policy. I mean, I could not understand, but I could accept that. But from multilateral institutions, there will be no funding for any fossil fuel, including gas. So the, the only funding will be for renewables. And you have the problem is that with renewables, you cannot develop. Of course, it's great to have a microgrid or to have your solar panel. This allows you to even to cook, but to charge your phone, which in this, in, in this uh, especially I'm thinking about sub-Saharan Africa, which I know quite well. Uh, this makes a fundamental change. Uh, but honestly, with that, you cannot have an industry. You cannot really create development. Now, this fundamentalist position against that is absolutely unfair uh, from, from Europeans, from especially, I would say, and from Americans, this idea that you, the, the African, and I'm speaking about African because this is a real issue in African countries, have to leapfrog from burning wood to renewable industry. A minister, and I can't remember the name, but I, I listened to a podcast the other day, an African minister was saying, well, you know what? All the developed world is on the rooftop and they are asking us, come, come, but they take out the ladder. And we have either to fly or to jump, but you cannot jump to the to a tall building. And I mean, she she is absolutely right. And you have mentioned another dimension, which is that there are hundreds of people that do not have any access, which means that instead of having a canister of of gas with which to cook and to they just they still are burning uh, wood. This is one of the issues that uh, that uh, India has said that they will be distributing uh, propane to uh, to rural areas that goes against climate, but of course goes against health. If you inhale the fumes of cooking, of just doing everything with wood, it's it's very bad. So I'm on the minority position here. I think that we have to revisit this conclusion from. COP26, that we need to be able to, to finance from multilaterals, especially gas generation, because without that, the, again, that you, you said it, with an increasing population, with a bulging youth, what are we doing? What, what, are, what are we expecting in Europe? Well, that people will try to come here. And that's because if there is no li livelihood at home, you, you are pushed to emigrate. Let's talk a little bit about trade. You, you referenced it a couple of times in, in your comments. And, um, you know, uh, you, you just when you thought the pandemic had reminded us all that we're all interconnected uh, uh, globally, um, there seems to be a, a growing trend of protectionist policies and, and politics. And of course, energy is a global market with, with uh, global commodities. I'm wondering, how concerned are you about trade restrictions 
uh, in general, uh, on energy, on, on issues like critical minerals and, and other areas? Well, first, I have heard that uh, there's uh, trade restrictions on fossil fuels. Well, this cannot be excluded, but I think that on fossil fuels, what we have to address is bottlenecks. And bottlenecks that in some cases are linked to investments at the source. So investment, upstream investment. In that sense, I understand perfectly Russia that says without long-term contracts, we cannot just sustain the investments that are needed. And, and I think that this is the component. It's not just that much uh, trade restrictions than coming to terms with the fact that for the transition, we need to take into account that you need to invest upstream uh, to guarantee it. But, uh, but it's true that uh, there are restrictions uh, in that affect energy. And one of them, we have mentioned it, but we haven't gone into, but I think that we have to face that unless there is a breakthrough again, there will be restrictions due to scarcity of uh, raw materials. Uh, cobalt, I mentioned that, but lithium is another example. And uh, this is simple, is that the projection uh, have nothing to do with the possibility of extraction. I mean, in minerals like cobalt, we depend, uh, what, 80% or 75% from the Repo uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a challenge in itself. So uh, for, for energy, I think that the restrictions will affect us there. It will also affect us as the, as the supply will affect us and as the priorities will affect us. I mentioned before, and this is uh, professional, I would say professional positioning, as it's happening to, I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with that, uh, suppliers that even have a, uh, an obligation, a legal obligation to first provide the internal market or the national market before, uh, before exports. And, and therefore there are a lot of, of supply contracts that are being delayed, uh, prices are increasing, so with all the consequences. And then there is purely logistics. Uh, we are facing, uh, due to all this, a real issue in transport, in, in the area of transports, mainly on, uh, on just maritime, but uh, in general terms. So we have to be uh, extremely, extremely cautious and again, to be transparent, to be, if you allow me, honest, to be realistic, to, to say, okay, we want to go to energy X, but energy X means these raw materials, and these raw materials have these consequences, or energy X, X means that the only supplier is country Y, and what does this mean for, for our, the security, because security of supply in energy is fundamental, and uh, I think that this is a, a great challenge that, again, we have to face it together, but to, to face it realistically without and, uh, informing the public opinion. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the MENA region. And, and uh, I know in Spain, you know, you're, you're a neighbor uh, as well. And, and there's some interconnections also with uh, Northern Africa. You know, there are many transitions in the Gulf and certainly uh, in, in the MENA region as well, and, and, and energy is, is one of them. Um, both the Gulf countries and the MENA region are pursuing diversification and the energy transition. Uh, Qatar, uh, UAE, and Saudi Arabia are all pursuing deployment of big renewable power projects as well as emerging technologies like hydrogen and CCUS. Um, certain countries like Morocco and Jordan and the Maghreb are, are moving uh, renewable deployment fast forward as well. Wondering what you think about progress in the region on energy transition and can European companies help play a role in partnering to help the region be successful in the transition? Well, again, Joe, it's not help. It's opportunities that are there. Opportunities for for European companies. Yeah, okay, well, first, uh, MENA region 
is a macro region and frankly the the challenges and the characteristics of uh, Morocco or Algeria have very little to do with the Gulf. And by the way, I have had the opportunity to visit twice the Gulf in the last, uh, well, in the last two months. I didn't go to Riyadh, so this is why I didn't call you, but uh, it's fantastic. It's really fantastic. And the discourse and the, the I would say that it, it, it has evolved in a very short time. And uh, I think that the Gulf is taking the lead in, in many aspects. But let me just say a couple of words about Morocco and Algeria. Again, Morocco and Algeria have very different characteristics. Morocco has bet on renewables and on the connection to the European Union. Uh, there are big, Warzazat is the biggest solar farm in the world still today. And Warzazat is aimed at, of course, uh, supplying energy to Morocco, but also to exporting over the 14 kilometers that separate uh, just uh, the European coast from the Moroccan coast. And, and this is the, the bet that the kingdom has made on being frontline in renewables. Uh, they have a big partnership with Germany on, on hydrogen. For instance, is extremely interesting and to be followed. And uh, for the European Union, is a must because we cannot square or we cannot solve our CO2 equation without uh, just getting this, uh, this complement from Morocco, for instance. Algeria is more, especially for Spain, is our gas pipeline supplier. And you know that right now because of geopolitics, because geopolitics is always impacting uh, uh, energy. We have one of the pipelines, uh, it's about 10 or 13 BCMs that is fundamental for us in Spain that is not working. We have just one pipeline, the, the direct one, and the one that transits through Morocco is now uh, not working. So, uh, for Algeria is, is a case in point of this, this idea that you need to invest upstream, that upstream need to be a regular investment and therefore there needs to be a projection, a future projection. Fast forward, well, Jordan is a different, uh, is a different case, but allow me to speak a bit about the Gulf because I think that the leadership of the Gulf is, um, uh, I have been going to the Gulf for different reasons for, I mean, I went back after the pandemic for the first time now in September and I saw a big difference, a willingness to, a political willingness to take the lead and to take the lead in, uh, in renewables and to take the lead in, the, in this diplomacy that you mentioned in this coordination that you mentioned. I said it before, I think that the Gulf has all the opportunities to attract partnerships, to deal with uh, research and uh, just uh, on hydrogen, on carbon capture and storage, it would make sense for Gulf countries. But you say help from the Europeans. My experience, I was in Arriva when the big contract of the Emirates was awarded not to Areva, but to a, a, a company from Korea. And we cannot think that we help. We need to understand we Europeans. We have many times this idea. Yes, of course, we are on the front line in many technologies, but competition today is big. And uh, the Gulf, you know, the Emirates was again a case in point. Uh, the quality versus price for Emirates, it made sense to go with, uh, with the Koreans, although the technology was not that, uh, I would say that the uh, frontline as, as the, the EPR. But this is what we have to understand. I think there is a, a big opportunity. Uh, I think that we need to, Again, to come to terms with the role that the Gulf is playing and will play, not just as suppliers, 
not just as, as easy suppliers, I would say, but uh, in a much more encompassing uh, just agenda. And uh, you see that again with India. India has, uh, of course, a, a link in many areas with uh, Australia, with Japan, but it, India is more and more looking into, into the Gulf as in a partnership, especially in, the, in this energy area. So, as I say, a very interesting process to be followed and to be, uh, again, to be mainstream, uh, to change preconceived ideas. We all have preconceived ideas. And we all, I mean, I was really surprised when I went now for the first time and I went back again to the Gulf. But after the COVID, I thought, well, wow, this is moving and this is moving and there is a commitment to move. Yeah, I totally agree with you. There's so much going on, and and it's it's on the technology side. They, you know, if there's going to be a green hydrogen economy, I think the the Gulf countries want to be major exporters and leaders uh, in that area as well. And uh, Anna, we'll we'll have to have you uh, to Saudi Arabia. We'll we'll invite you. You have an open invitation anytime. But uh, there's so much going on in terms of the Saudi uh, economy and diversification and, and energy transition as well. So look forward to welcoming you to the IAF. But we could probably talk all uh, day about uh, different topics. And uh, I think we should probably end it there. Um, thank you again uh, for, for joining us, uh, former uh, Spanish Foreign Minister Ana Palacio, uh, for sharing her views and perspectives. And to everyone listening today, Subscribe to the IEF podcast and hear more thoughtful discussions about energy issues, news, sustainability, and energy transitions, and of course, our work and activities at the IEF, available wherever you listen to podcasts.